Hey, hey, water coolians, welcome back to another episode of Water Cooler Talk because we're back at it again. That's for the uh, Collar Daddy crossover fans. Summer break is over here at Water Cooler HQ. We took an extra week because why not? How many times are we going to have an opportunity to be on summer vacation in the middle of a global freaking pandemic? <laughs> hopefully only once, hopefully only once. But boy, oh boy, am I loving the guests and conversations we have lined up for the rest of the year. As the show continues to grow, as you listeners continue to, well, listen and share the show, interact with the show, we are, you know, lucky enough to have a viewer submitted story today. The guest list is just going to continue to grow and grow. If there is someone who you think might be the perfect guest, small or big, obviously obviously not too big, uh, we're not on the level of George Clooney just yet, just yet, we'll have, we'll have George on the show eventually, let me know and we can try to get them booked on the show. I know for me there are certain conversations or topics I'm interested in covering, and hence the guest selections fill that role, but if there's a topic or conversation you would like to see covered on the podcast, let us know. Any of those requests can be made by emailing us at watercoolertalkpod at gmail.com or by DMing us on Instagram at watercoolertalkpod. To today's episode, we are joined by Professor Jake Teeny from Northwestern University who runs the blog everydaypsych.com, which applies fascinating and cutting-edge psychological research to enhance everyday life. Jake is a incredibly insightful and intelligent individual. I came across his work while, you know, reading about the pros and cons of riots following the death of George Floyd. And what I like about his work is first, obviously, his attention to detail and facts, but the way he effortlessly weaves a plot line into his research. Uh, you know, there are some really, really cool studies being done in our world, but most academic studies are written for their peers, uh, not the everyday individual, and many of those ideas and results go unheard because of this. So I appreciate Jake coming on the show and having a conversation and being able to apply that data to everyday life. In this episode, we discuss the back and forth debate about the use of face masks during COVID-19 and the deeper meaning behind why mask skepticism exists. I highly recommend going into our conversation with an open mind regardless of, you know, where your stance on masks may be. And finally, in partnership with our first story, we cover a study done by Gerd Gigerinzer in which he found that people are willing to remain willfully ignorant, even if it means missing out on vital life information. From that story, we both answer the age-old question of, would you want to know when you would die if given the chance? Listener, I now ask that question back to you. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, this is Water Cooler Talk episode 43 titled, Naive Realism with Jake Teeny. Enjoy. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. Let's get into this. Before we begin, though, I do. I had a chance to listen to your 1331 rap uh, about your house of horrors. Uh, first, you know, it looks like your housing situation has improved, but most importantly, still in. Are you still in the rap game? And have you put those MMA skills to good use? <laughs> no, no longer in the rap game. Uh, and I haven't done MMA now in a few years. I did boxing for a few years in graduate school, but. Um, especially with Corona. It's not the, the greatest <laughs> the best time, sport yeah. to be engaged in. Um, but no, so both of those are part of my past at this point. Well, that's a, li that's a little tidbit if you go to your website, that uh, 1331 wrap there. Mm -hmm. All right, Jake, you ready to jump into our first news story? Yeah, let's get at it. This story was actually submitted by Ellie Patel. Thank you, Ellie, for submitting the story. If anyone else wants to submit a story, you can do so at watercoolertalkpod at gmail.com. Ice cream shop asked customers to stop yelling at teenage employees about mask requirements. This is from The Hill Wellbeing, July 1st, 2020. Mouton Creamery owner Angela Brooks was at wit's end when she took to Facebook to post in regards to a few customers yelling at her employees over having to wear masks inside the store. Her post reads, I've been trying not to say anything, but it's getting out of control. Stop yelling at these young girls. Stop slamming doors. Stop swearing at them and making a scene. Stop. Full caps on the stop. Do you know how hard it is to work a summer rush in a face mask with a line of customers to the door, some waiting outside, online orders dinging on the tablet, the phone ringing off the hook? Does it feel good to make a 16-year-old girl cry in the bathroom or sob on her way home from work? Does that make you feel better about COVID? How would you feel if someone did this to your child? 
The Facebook post, which had been posted at the end of June, almost a month prior to Ohio Governor Mike DeWine announcing a statewide mask mandate beginning on July 23rd, went viral and had been shared more than 2,000 times and received thousands of sympathetic comments. Since the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic in the United States, some Americans have been hesitant to follow public health recommendations to wear face coverings and follow social distancing measures, even protesting local and state government policies. Uh, Much of this hesitancy has come from the CDC and WHO, claiming face masks were not needed early in the pandemic. They have since switched that recommendation. And the Trump administration not supporting the wearing of a mask until Trump himself agreed to wear a mask to his visit to the Walter Reed Military Hospital in mid-July. As of August 3rd, we're recording this August 4th. 82% of registered voters polled support a mask mandate. In response to the anger by a few customers, one employee of the creamery stated, It just kind of makes you feel like you're doing something wrong, even though you're just enforcing a rule that I didn't even create and there's nothing I can do about it, and I'm just going along with it. So it just kind of makes you feel bad about yourself in a way. So Jake, I don't want to talk about as far as if masks are effective. That's not the conversation, you know, we talked prior. That's not the conversation I want to have. Health Affairs, uh, which is a peer-reviewed, unbiased, and as a clean fact-check record, released a study that found wearing masks reduced COVID-19 growth rate over a three-week period by 2%. You know, the conversation I'm interested in having focuses on more why the skepticism exists on confirmation bias, the tendency to find information that favors your opinion. I myself just did exactly that. But why do humans have a general fear of being wrong? And how do we avoid naive realism? Yeah, I mean, those are some great questions. And ones that I think behavioral researchers are still actively trying to tackle to this day. I mean, briefly to talk about naive realism, because I think that is such an important concept that underscores a lot of psychology, is the idea that the world we see is the world as it is. Um, When in reality, our perception is very malleable and subjective to our expectations, prior experiences, wants and desires. And so what one person may see is absolutely true. Another person might perceive as being um, false or a little less than true or something like that. And where this becomes an issue, especially in today's Internet age, is truth can be whatever you make your Google search out to be. I mean, depending on whether you frame a Google search in the positive or the negative, you'll get completely different results. So, you know, I think there is a lot of debate in back and forth about whether masks are good or bad, even though, as the study you cited shows, it's pretty empirically demonstrated of their success because we can kind of construct our realities to a degree. Well, how do you say, like like I said, like I could just find this information that fits my bias Health Affairs is a peer-reviewed, unbiased, has a clean fact-check record. But if you go to a mass skepticism message board, they have that same information, but supporting their ideals. So how do you clear that hump to find common ground to be able to move forward and have a conversation that's beneficial? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a really difficult question. Again, I think this internet age has really complicated what truth is, what fact is. You know, growing up, we all learned the scientific method. And if science shows it, then we trust it. But nowadays, I think there's a bit of this anti-science movement. You know, everything has become so politicized uh, that it's easy to kind of find truth where you want it. I think there's actually um, a recent study, or actually it's not that recent, it's from 2003 by Jeff Cohen, looking at how we come to form our attitudes, you know, based on either the truth or, you know, the opinions we read about or um, kind of our group leaders or what our in-group is supporting. And what they find is that when a topic is kind of ambiguous, so maybe uh, how effective the masks are, even though, as you show, the data is clear, but the world just makes everything ambiguous. So masks are kind of ambiguous, their effectiveness in, to some people. And then also masks have really kind of adopted this partisan or party sideline. So um, when those two factors are apparent, people just adopt whatever their party's saying or whatever their group is saying. And so it can be difficult to try and reason because you're going to be just competing ideas and not kind of the premises that underscore those ideas. Well, yeah. 
again, that's where I think it's become really dangerous in America is it's become either you're on my side or you're against me when really it'd be beneficial if we're both on the same side and we both can move forward. And I think it comes down to a lot of like information can be right there in front of somebody, you know, Occam's razor, it's the easiest possible solution. But people now with the internet, as you, you know, mentioned, they're always looking for more, they think there's more there's, you know, the conspiracy theories on the, the internet that you can find and you can find all this information that's like, oh, shoot, did uh, Kennedy's head just do that? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> that information is there. And I think, you know, we've talked a lot about it on the show. It's like, Back checking that information, but who do you trust? You know, if you don't have the time to go in depth or become, you know, somebody with a PhD, it's like you don't always have that time to double check where your facts are coming from. So you're trusting these people. And, you know, I understand people who support Trump. They're seeing he's not, you know, until mid July, as I mentioned, he's not wearing a mask. So why should I need to wear a mask? It comes down to leaders needing to lead. That's a pretty much a direct quote from what Trump has said before in a tweet. But it's important that leaders show good restraint on what information they do share, because especially now in this information age, like I could say something and it could reach millions of people. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important that when you have that power, especially, you know, if you're the CDC, the WHO, you know, the Trump administration, you make sure those facts are well checked, unbiased, and they go out and they help the world and not potentially hurt the world and divide the world more. I mean, I think you raise a bunch of good points. Part of the issue is that, like you said, with this information overload, we have to use heuristics or kind of shortcuts to figure out what is truth, what is false. And so we often rely on key signals. Oh, is this someone I respect that's saying this? Okay, then it's probably true. I mean, they did another cool study where they gave a bunch of true and false statements to participants. And they gave them to either Democrats or Republicans. And they then attributed these statements to Trump or just kind of left them anonymous. And what they found is that when Republicans were reading these statements, true or false, they said they were truer. When Democrats were reading these statements, true or false, they said they were falser. So again, we're just kind of using whatever the source is to explain whether or not the fact is truth, because a lot of us don't have the time to spend seven years in a PhD to read the empirical articles supporting them. The difficulty then becomes, well, which sources do we trust and which ones don't we trust? Well, yeah, and I think that's the most important thing to mention is both sides do this. Everyone does this. Right. This is not totally. a left issue. This is not a right issue. Everyone does this. Even, you know, coming into this conversation with you, you know, I set aside five days to research what's going on and try to get as much information. You've been doing this for your pretty much entire life. I've been doing this for five days. <laughs> so it's like my information compared to yours is going to be much different. And, you know, that's why I think it's important that we have a correction at the end of the episode. And it's just one of those things where I don't think people really genuinely like to be told they're wrong. They don't like to change, as we'll talk about in our second news story. People don't like to look at facts that could potentially change who they are as a person and affect their ego. And I think that's what we're finding here. People are, especially Americans, I'll speak specifically to Americans, they hold their freedoms and rights so tightly that sometimes it comes across as entitlement, not the love thy neighbor, but love thyself and fuck thy neighbor. <laughs> I mean, people have a natural desire to want to be right. From an evolutionary background, we need to know how the world is in order to act and respond accordingly. So we need to believe we think we're, you know, everything we're perceiving is accurate so we can respond to it accurately. But as we kind of started this discussion, naive realism leaves a lot of gray area in the world and allows for these interpretations and biases to kind of lead us astray and kind of come up with things that just make us feel right rather than actually be right. And, you know, I think that's an important distinction that we're really only kind of starting to uncover more with the internet age and the information overload. I've actually done some research on a, on a construct we call self-defining attitudes, where certain opinions we have, maybe your opinion toward running, maybe your opinion toward hosting podcasts, you know, can be positive or negative. And for a lot of people, that's all it is. Oh, I like ice cream. Oh, I like my cell phone. But for other people, that opinion isn't just whether or not they like it or dislike it. That opinion says something about who they are. 
And so it's this self-defining attitude. And I think we're seeing a lot of that these days. We're defining ourselves by our media. We're defining ourselves by, you know, the news organizations that we associate with the activities we take on. And because of that, when a self-defining attitude is threatened, people do not respond well to that. They double down on their attitude rather than trying to correct it or understand where it may have gone wrong. And so the more we incorporate our likes and dislikes into our perception of who we are, the more we're going to get this pushback and the more we're going to ignore truth in favor of what feels good. No, that's that's like such a good concept because it is. It's like so many people have added in what they believe to be their personality. And it's like, if you believe something and you define yourself as that, if somebody says, well, you're wrong, they're not just attacking your ideas and your beliefs, but they're attacking you as a person. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, and then Jake, like in our conversations before the episode, you mentioned the minimal group paradigm. Mm -hmm. Do you mind explaining the idea behind the concept and how it applies to say this situation? Yeah. So one of the most famous kind of methodologies in psychology today that was actually discovered by accident. So back in the seventies or eighties, um, Henry Tajfeld was studying intergroup bias and intergroup relationships. And what he wanted to do is he wanted to see, okay, at what point does a group, you know, some meaningless group, maybe people who wear headphones, people who wear brown shirts, um, all of a sudden take on meaning and you start treating out group members, people who aren't part of your group as kind of negatively. So he's like, all right, I'm going to make the most basic division between groups. I'm going to take some participants. I'm going to see which of them like this abstract painting. And I'm going to see which of them like that abstract painting. So he gets these two groups. You know, we've got the abstract A group and the abstract B group. Before doing any more to that, all of a sudden, group A and group B are disliking each other. They're giving less money to the other side of the group. They're less supporting them when it comes to cooperative tasks. And what he came to find is that the minimal group paradigm is that you can take the smallest denotation of what constitutes a group. And all of a sudden you start acting as if this is your personal badge. This is your clan. And anyone not part of that um, gets treated negatively. They've grouped people into overestimators or underestimators. And you see these same effects. I want to give all my money to the other overestimators. I don't want to give any to the underestimators and the same back and forth. And it's this idea that groups are so built into our evolutionary psychology that even the most minimal, you know, delineation between groups is enough to evoke a lot of these psychological reactions, um, positive and negative, uh, between your group members, in-group members, and the outsiders, out-group members. Well, yeah, I definitely understand that idea of you know, survival back in the day was about being in a group. You wanted to be in the biggest group because that means you could, you know, you're safe from outside forces, you're safe from animal attacks, you have more people that can potentially hunt, farm, fish, whatever it may be. So I definitely get that. And I think evolutionary wise, we still have that in the back of our minds. It does. It is the, the smallest thing. I think I read the study about the kids who are told um, they're either one color or the next color. And like half of the group was told they're predestined to be this color. And the other half was said, hey, it's a 50-50 flip. Both those groups, they were like, yeah, I mean, I believe I'm red or I, I think it was orange and green. I believe I'm orange. I believe I'm green. No matter if it was a 50-50 flip or they were told they were destined to be that color. And it's, it's such an interesting concept. And I'm glad you kind of brought it up because I was like, yeah, it makes sense. And when you get to a situation like this, of course. Yeah. I mean, again, like it's a minimal group, those who wear masks versus those who do. It's not this deep seated kind of, you know, dispositional characteristic. But all of a sudden we have the anti-maskers and we have the pro-maskers. And it really, again, evokes a lot of some of the negative psychology that's related to group psychology. I mean, as much as we like to think we are the alpha animal on this planet, which we are by numbers <laughs> and technology, I mean, our... Our ascension to this position is very recent in terms of like the whole evolutionary scheme. Only about 70,000 years ago is there kind of this spark in human acceleration. And so you're taking a process that had otherwise taken millions of years. And now you think that we're going to somehow shed all of our instinctual or evolutionary past. It's just impossible. Well, that's a good point. And then people hear stories like this and they think that the minimal group is absolutely ridiculous, but we wouldn't be here as humans if we didn't have it. It creates competition. It's like, well, I need 
need to be better than that group. So I invent the printing press and I need to be better than that group. So I invent the locomotive train. And so, like you said, this has been something that has been in human history, human existence since the introduction of, you know, humans. And it's not something that we can just say, well, don't be a dumbass. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Uh, and then Jake, as we talked about in a previous episode with Andrew Krause, much of the time when somebody publicly acts in anger as these few people did yelling at these teenage girls, the situation is just the straw that broke the camel's back of a lot more personal issues. Uh, the question I want to ask you is, why do you believe anger clouds our judgment and takes us to that mind frame of, like I said, or takes us away from that mind frame of love thy neighbor? Yeah, so anger is a complicated but also simple emotion. Anger often arises from confusion. So when we're confused why something's happening, we tend to get angry as almost like a self-protective form. Anger, it makes us confident in our actions. Anger makes us ready to respond. And so in cases of confusion or uncertainty or hurt, hurt, we often see anger as a response. It's kind of this protective mechanism now. As I mentioned earlier, anger inspires a lot of confidence in oneself and confidence in one's actions. So typically, you know, when you're not angry, maybe you're a little more skeptical about your thoughts. Oh, should I say this? Should I do that? When you're angry, whatever first thought comes to mind, we tend to think it's a valid thought, a good thought to act on. And so we do. And it influences our behavior pretty immediately. I, I like to view anger as like the the beginning of the flight or flight response. And then, yeah, you become receptive. You don't think you're judgment gets clouded because your adrenaline's either going, I'm either going to, you know, attack or I'm going to run and you don't have time to really think about what needs to be thought about. You can't slow that thinking because you do have these chemicals in your body that are saying, don't think, just react. Mm -hmm. When people are angry, they do not make rational decisions. That doesn't mean that they're you know, right for making those decisions because they don't think about it. You definitely have to work on yourself. People aren't just getting mad because they have to wear masks in an ice cream store. There's a lot more going on for that individual when people read these stories, they can't just take it at face value. They really have to understand, yes, this is something that people don't enjoy. You know, they don't like being told they have to wear a mask because it takes away their rights. And we're going to go into a George Orwellian 1984. But there's also a lot more going on that potentially puts them in that situation where they are responding and yelling at a 16-year-old girl in an ice cream shop when you should just be happy to have ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, I think that's the broadest point to take away. Everyone should just be happy to get ice cream. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I really appreciate you taking a more nuanced perspective to what's going on, you know, with the shouting at the teenagers. I think a lot of these cases, when it's someone who does something we don't agree with, we immediately dismiss them as being stupid or irrational. But like you said, there's a lot probably going under the hood for this person who reacts so negatively. You know, I, I was thinking when you sent this article, like, what if me, a mask wearer, went into a store where nobody was wearing masks? And then they said, hey, you, if you want service, you're going to have to take your mask off. How would I respond? Shoot, I might yell at the teenage girl, you know, because all of a sudden I'm embarrassed. I'm like, here's this thing that is expressing against self-defining attitudes says something about me. And now you're telling me in front of a bunch of other people that I'm wrong. You know, I think I'm behaving rationally and everybody else is behaving irrationally. You know, and then you mix in, we mentioned anger. When you're angry, you tend to rely more on your stereotypes of people. And one common stereotype or response to service workers is to dehumanize them. We kind of, we don't see them as actual people with feelings. So, you know, you get me feeling embarrassed. You get me feeling angry. I'm not thinking of these girls as 16-year-old girls who are going to have to go home and do homework and spend time with their family. I'm thinking of this person who's supposed to serve me, who's just embarrassed me in front of all my peers. And I don't know what to do. I'm confused. I'm hurt. I lash out with anger. Now, none of that is to justify the behavior. But I think by taking the approach you did and kind of slow down and say, okay, well, what's really going on here? We can work to trying to prevent or forestall these kind of negative occurrences, social occurrences happening in the future. Well, I think it is good to look at these situations and kind of slow down and think 
you know, through all these things. But like, as you said, if I was in this situation, I probably would not, you don't have the time to think. So that's mm-hmm. why you need to do this practice beforehand and get in a good spot to where when a situation like this does happen and there's not a lot of time to think about and react, you're reacting from a place of positivity rather than a place of, mm-hmm. you know, as you said, you're this one person in a group of 20 who feels like an outcast and you react because you're scared and you need to do something to make you feel safe again. And a lot of the time, yeah, you forget who it is and you're just reacting to the idea rather than the person, the rather than to the individual. Mm-hmm. No, totally. And this is fine. Just this morning, literally an email came into my inbox with the table of contents for the new articles published in the top journal in psych. And so I was kind of scrolling through there. And one of them was exactly to what we're talking about today, where they found that if you are part of a group who feels that a higher power group is suppressing your interests. So in this case, the anti-maskers feel that the more powerful group is saying you have to wear a mask. One of their primary reactions is hostile emotions. So, I mean, it's just case in point of kind of, you know, the empirical research playing out in real life, where again, when you feel like your group is being oppressed, being rejected, your natural reaction is to have kind of these more hostile emotions. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I would like to welcome to the show Jake Teeny. Jake is a professor of marketing at the Kellogg School of Management at Northern at Northwestern University and author of the website everydaypsych.com, in which you can find a collection of his work along with his weekly blog, research, and many of his short stories. Uh, and the 1331 rap. Jake, welcome <laughs> to the show. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Uh, as you mentioned on your site, you have a large collection of your personal short stories, much of them related to sci-fi, history, suspense. And in one of your writings, you had the, I thought, very well-crafted line, I write because it finally lets me hear what a dragon's roar sounds like or what deep space feels like, because it reduces the opacity of my walls and permits me trepid glances at the blurred shapes dancing beyond. Do you mind explaining a bit more about the importance of writing and creating and how you have fused together your background in psychology with creating these intricate, uh, fictitious worlds? Well, first, let me say that was one heck of a flowery sentence I wrote at obviously (laughs) a younger age. I don't know if I take such liberty in prose these days. But um, yeah, I mean, I have loved fiction and creative writing since I was a little, little guy. And I think it intertwines really well with my research on psychology now um, through a number of factors. One, I can intertwine a lot of the psychology that I know from research into my characters to better have them respond how they would in real life. Um, But two, I think Plot is very similar to research in some ways. So you have A causes B, B causes C, C, you know, down this kind of uh, causal chain. And so when it comes to research, you're similarly trying to figure out, well, why does A cause B and B cause C? And so there's some overlap. Now with fiction, like I wrote, you know, I get to do it with dragons rather than 50 participants online, but, but there's still this same feeling of discovery. Um, how would people respond? How do people behave? You know, in psychology research in particular, you have to, um, or behavioral research more broadly, you have to come up with really compelling designs or, you know, research methodology that transports the participant into this world or psychology you're trying to create. And that's very similar uh, to what you're doing with fiction too. You're trying to transport the reader into this other world and get them to feel, um, you know, what, what the characters are feeling or these things. So There's always a good opportunity to say like no offense research studies aren't the most interesting reads <laughs> so it you you have that opportunity to really infuse the results of your study and what you find into fictitious stories that can be relatable and people can actually be like oh i got a i got a good lesson from mm-hmm. that yeah no definitely i mean one thing i've really been striving toward now is to make my scientific articles a little more fun to read. I mean, (laughs) after my dissertation, I had a bunch of my parents and friends being like, oh, let me read your dissertation. It's like, "Ah, let me me (laughs) give you like the bullet point summary or something. But I think there is a way to be true to science and empirical findings while also make it making it entertaining for you know the readers and the audiences and these things definitely uh listeners if you'd like to connect with jake you can do so by by supporting his website everydaypsych.com and reading his weekly blog once again that's everydaypsych.com and as always those links will be included in the description of this episode and available under jake's episode on our website www.watercoolertalkpod.com once again www.watercoolertalkpod.com before we move on water cooler talk is on a mission to help give back to different parts of the community and those who have helped build our show to where it stands today. 
For each episode, the guests will bring with them a charity of their choice to represent. On the day of the episode going live, Water Cooler Talk will give a donation to the charity in the guest's name, as well as a global platform to spread a message of love, hope, and togetherness. Jake, your charity of choice for today's episode is the ACLU, very prominent in the news these days. But do you mind explaining a bit more about what they do and how they have an impact in our community? Yeah, you know, the ACLU really helps to fight for the rights of underrepresented groups. Um, You know, they provide a lot of legal services for those who couldn't afford them or who have been misrepresented. You know, in in choosing them, there there were a few reasons behind doing it. One, they're a longstanding organization which has well proven their effectiveness. I think, you know, Sometimes people say don't donate to the bigger charities because they already have money, but they're also very efficacious at what they do. And so, you know, your money's helping to really contribute to the good cause. Um, Two, I think, you know, during these times, their efforts and needs are more prominent and, you know, they could definitely use the support. And I mean, three, choosing between charities, is like choosing between favorite children. (laughs) So at the end of the day, you just got to settle on one. Well, I mean, if uh, you ask, if you ask my mom, she has a favorite children or child and it's me so it's me so uh so some people some people can make that distinction (laughs) all right jake are you ready to jump into our final news story of the day yeah let's do it why do people avoid facts that could help them this is from scientific american june 16th 2020 in our information age an unprecedented amount of data sits at our fingertips we run genetic tests on our unborn children to prepare for the worst We get cancer screenings and monitor our health on our phones, and we can learn about our ancestral ties and genetic predispositions with a simple swab of saliva. Yet, there's some information that many of us do not want to know. A study of more than 2,000 individuals in Germany and Spain led by Gerd Gigerenzer of the Max Planck Institute for Human Development found that 90% of the participants would not want to find out when their partner would die or what the cause would be. 87% reported not wanting to know the date of their own death, and more than 86% said no when asked if they wanted to know if and when they would get divorced from their partner. Related research points to a similar conclusion. We often prefer to avoid learning information that could cause us pain. Emily Ho, a research assistant professor at Northwestern University, there you go, Jake, mm-hmm. along with her colleagues, developed a scale to measure people's relative aversion to potentially unpleasant but also potentially useful information. 380 individuals were presented with various scenarios designed to test their desire to know across three domains, personal health, finances, and other people's opinions of them, with each scenario presenting the possibility of a favorable or unfavorable outcome. On average, participants reported that they would definitely or probably not want to receive such information 32% of the time. And even though the degree in which people wanted to avoid information wasn't associated with gender, age, education, or income, Ho and her team found that those who are more open to new experiences tended to seek out such information. The general body of research suggests that deliberate ignorance is a widespread preference not only in relation to painful news and events such as death and divorce, but can also be true for pleasurable outcomes such as birth or even Christmas presents. When Giga Renzer asked his 2,000 plus participants if they wanted to learn about positive life events, most preferred ignorance over knowledge. This result might have something to do with the possibility of disappointment, but the bigger issue the research shows is that people enjoy... Wait for it. Suspense. Information avoidance can be a problem if it keeps us from learning things that would help us make smarter choices. But declining to learn available information does allow us to forego some of the suffering that knowing the future may cause. And there seems to be magic in the maybe. Jake, I want to go deep right away. If you were given the chance, would you want to know when you would die? Yeah, no, that's a, a good question. I mean, if I really explore this hypothetical question, yes, because then I could do all the craziest crap in the world and then know that I'm going to live and wait just for that one final death date. But realistically, probably not. You know, I it would be crappy to have that just <laughs> hanging over your head. Oh, gosh, another 30 days until the big one. I don't know. I, I don't think I would want to either because it it is. And then you... It's it's a countdown. It's not you're not enjoying your life to enjoy life and live life and live the experiences. You're enjoying life to cross things off a list. Like, oh, I'm gonna die in 30 years. Well, I have 30 years to knock down this list. And you spend your life just accomplishing goals rather than 
I guess, I mean, you, in life, you do want to accomplish goals, but that's not all life is about. And I think I, I definitely would not want to know. I definitely, you know, I know they mentioned Huntington's disease. Um, there was a good episode of Scrubs. I think it was the season finale where, you know, the guy had the option to, you know, find out if he has Huntington's disease, because if your parent has it, it's a dominant gene, there's a 50-50 chance you get it. And he was like, I don't want to know, because that could potentially change the course of his life. And as you know, the study talks about, I don't think I would want to know either if I had Huntington's disease, because then it's just, like I said, it's a countdown. I have you know, 20 years until my brain starts to eat itself. And I don't want to know that, because then I spend my life fearing that moment. And I think that's the biggest thing. I think that's the you know, as we talked about in that first story too, humans have tendency to be fearful. That's just who we are. That's how we stay safe. That's how we, you know, don't go out into the woods and get eaten by a tiger. You know, you give the option to let somebody know when they're going to die or when their disease is going to hit that's potentially going to end their life. And people are fearful. They don't want to know that. I don't want to know that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think there are a, a few things at play here. One, I think it depends on your reaction. You could start treating it as just like a countdown mm-hmm. or it could help reinforce your reverence and love for everyday life and for everyday experiences. You know you have this short amount of time and so you just want to take it in and soak it in as much as possible. I would have we'd have to really kind of talk to the people who have learned versus not learned and see seen. But I could imagine not learning, you're still gonna be thinking almost every day, oh do I have it? Do I have it? You know, in general people are pretty bad at affective forecasting, like imagining how they're going to feel in the future in response to different events. So I I don't put a ton of stock in my own kind of intuitive, like, you know, I think, oh, this class I'm going to take is going to be so bad. I should never sign up for it. And then you take and you're like, oh my gosh, that was amazing. How could I have never thought about it? I I think the natural intuition to think, yeah, why would I ever want to know my death? But for many people, it may be actually after learning it, you feel free in a sense. No, and that's, that's a good point. And that's, you know, it's one of those things where I see it this way, they see it another way. And it's it's tough for me to see it the other way. It's tough for me to be like, oh, that gives you some freedom when I know, you know, based on my life, on my behaviors, like I would not want to know this because it would limit me, I feel like. But for other people, as you say, there are people that it would help open up their life and help them experience life more. And I think that's the important thing, you know, going back to that first story is taking the time to really think, oh, shit, somebody else has a different opinion than me and I'm not right 100% of the time. Yeah, no, no, I I think that ties in real nicely. There's some classic work looking at um, professors and asking them, you know, how upset would they be if they didn't get tenure? And uh, they say, oh, it'd be the worst thing ever if I didn't get tenure. And then they follow them up with them years later. And for those that didn't get tenure, they actually, actually, I feel pretty good. You know, I don't have this sort of expectation. There's less pressures. This just highlights how miscalibrated we can be in anticipating our emotional reactions long term or short term. Oh, that's definitely a good point. And I definitely I want to talk about fear a little more. I think we talk about fear in like the broad aspect of humanity, but I specifically want to go a little more into like um, men, the fear of men being wrong. Mm. And I think, you know, that's an important topic, you know, I've discussed on this podcast and I really want to discuss more. You know, do you believe there's a difference between the sexes? in being wrong and the fear of being wrong? And if so, why? I I don't know of any empirical research to take. I'm sure that it's out there to take one stance or the other. So I'll speak kind of in my broad experiences. But um, I think generally, there is a socio-cultural pressure for men to be right, for men to be strong, for men to know the way and what to do. And so fear is a form of vulnerability. And so people don't, you know, maybe men in particular don't want to express fear or express that vulnerability and kind of connecting back to that our discussion on anger earlier, you know, anger is one way to deal with fear rather than being afraid, you get angry because now all of a sudden you know what to do and it, it doesn't have that feeling of uncertainty associated with it. Yeah. And we've had the chance to have a similar conversation like this on the show. And we talked about how, you know, women have had this opportunity through their lives to be surrounded by people that show them all these different emotions where men have not had that opportunity. And as you say, you know, fear is definitely a vulnerability. And, you know, you're taught as a man that you're not supposed to be scared. You're supposed to, you know, in the scary movie, you're supposed to be the one leading the charge or you're supposed to be the one diving headfirst into a freaking war. And men have never gotten the chance to really question the why behind being headfirst and being the first one. And I think nowadays we do finally get that chance because we're 
not in the middle of a war. <laughs> Hopefully nothing happens. I don't jinx it. I'll knock that in the wood. Um, but we're finally getting the chance to really address male vulnerability and really address the fear of of being wrong. And I think, what, granted, whatever people say about Donald Trump, if you support him, if you don't, I think there is a general fear. He's very fearful of being wrong and looking like a fool. And I think he would be a much better improved person if he could admit sometimes he's wrong. And I mean, there's a ton of different examples, but I think that's a good example an international audience might connect to. It, it, it's important that men growing up see other men, other influential men say, hey, I'm wrong. Yeah, yeah. You know, I didn't have all the information. You know, I changed my opinion. I was wrong. I was fearful. Uh, I reacted this way. I think that's important for young boys to kind of see and really finding that common ground to be a better, just not even a man, but just a better human being. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think we're seeing a lot of those changes play out in society today. I think with uh, greater receptivity to therapy and counseling, um, it's becoming more okay to be vulnerable about our emotions. I mean, there's still a big disproportion in men versus women going to therapy. Um, but I think boys are starting to learn that a little more from a younger age compared to older times where it was really strictly enforced, especially during kind of the military days and, you know, the wars and those things. Yeah. So, so I have hope that things are improving, uh, maybe not as quickly as we'd like to see, but I, I think your point about feeling vulnerable in front of a lot of people is a lot different too than feeling vulnerable by yourself or with a close other. So for Donald Trump, who's on this national stage with a tenuous relationship with public approval, looking wrong is even more threatening and more scary than if it were with his family or close friends. Well, that's that's definitely a very good point because I've been wrong in the public eye before and it's it's like you have a freaking spotlight on you and the whole world is looking at you and being like hey dude you're you got that one wrong are you gonna say something about it and you have you know I definitely I definitely agree with what you said you have that immense pressure to double down almost that's like your first reaction mm -hmm. that's just one of those things that's just generational among men is like you're taught to believe in yourself and even if that's wrong just double down and keep pushing forward yeah i'm well i'll humor me telling a brief anecdote one of my professors got married a few years ago one of my advisors got married a few years ago and afterward they were going to the bar for kind of the post wedding celebration and one of his close friends was at the front of the line and something happened between her and the bouncer where she insulted the bouncer, the bouncer felt hurt and he wouldn't let her in. And so there's this big, long line of wedding attendees waiting and she's trying to push back, trying to explain it's for a wedding. He's saying, no, there's no chance you're going to get here. And so my advisor stepped up and said, hey, would it be all right? you know, have her step aside and we let these other people through. So then all the other people went through and then he re-engaged the conversation. And now without 20 people watching to say, oh, you just said she was wrong. You're not going to back down, are you? The bouncer relented and let her in. So again, I think this idea of how we are, you know, how we imagine being perceived by others plays a strong role into how willing we are to be vulnerable, how willing we are to show fear. In the article you sent, it was a lot about why aren't people listening to facts that could potentially help them. And psychologists kind of break down two really key motivations in our behavior in terms of self-enhancement, making ourselves feel good, and self-assessment knowing who we are and what is right. And a lot of the time that self-enhancement motive, feeling right, is more important than that self-assessment motive, being right. And so, you know, there are different situations where one motive is stronger than the other. But in general, self-enhancement, people want to feel good. They want to feel right. Well, how do we work towards, I mean, I don't know if this is the right way to describe it, but flipping that. Yeah, well, you're going to have to overcome some really strong <laughs> psychology, <laughs> uh, but but there are, there are definitely ways to do it. <clears throat> One of the key moderators for whether self-enhancement or self-assessment is the dominant uh, motivation is, again, of the group of people you're around. If you're around a group of high-risk rejection, you're in a new party, you're with new friends, you're going to self-enhance, you're going to brag. If you're around close friends, you're around family, you'll be more likely to self-assess and kind of confront negative truths um, about yourself. There's other little interventions psychologists have worked on to try to make people more open to negative feedback and these things, which I could go into. But by and large, people 
lean towards wanting to feel good, which has its own positive effects too. Being right all the time and totally self-accurate is actually not good for your mental health. <laughs> uh, Jake, well, I want to thank you for taking the time to share your perspective on some of the strangest and most interesting news stories the world has to offer in a productive and meaningful conversation. Listeners, if you'd like to connect with Jake, you can do so by supporting his website, everydaypsych.com and reading his weekly blog. Once again, that's everydaypsych.com. I had the chance to, as I mentioned, read your blog on the pros and cons of riots uh, after the situation here in Minnesota. And now you're not your official member of the Water Cooler Talk family. So <laughs> you can rest assured he he is worth the read. Uh, and as always, those links will be included in the description of this episode and available under Jake's episode on our website, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. Once again, www.watercoolertalkpod.com. Uh, so first off, congratulations. You recently obtained your PhD. Uh, and I like you took the moment to talk about happiness and how you could help others find happiness. Uh, and this is a question that people love to answer on the show because <laughs> everyone has a different idea about it. But what does happiness mean to you? Oh, boy, you're asking a guy who works with definitions for a living about <laughs> how to define happiness. That's that's a squirrely one. Um, there's a lot of different ways to approach it in psychology. It's typically referred to as subjective well-being. So, And this is defined by three tenets. So having happiness is one, having some kind of like purpose or meaning um, for your daily activities. Two, maximizing your positive emotions. And three, minimizing your negative emotions. So um, there's a lot of really great advice from psychology about how to be happier. I'll give just a couple right now. One, practice mindfulness meditation. The research is outstanding on how much this can improve people's well well-being, subjective well-being, um, by helping them engage better with positive emotions and even engage better with negative emotions. So practicing mindfulness can be very helpful. Two, spending money on others or doing acts of kindness, as cliche as that sound, time and time again uh, improves people's well-being. They just did this huge replication study where essentially they give people, you know, 20 bucks to spend on themselves or 20 bucks to spend on someone else. And they find that when you spend that money on somebody else, everybody comes back reporting happiness. And then the third tip I'll give, which is related to the last one, um, is to express gratitude. Gratitude is a really powerful emotion that we typically don't engage with until we've lost something and then we get it back. So, oh, I'm so grateful to be healthy again, you know, without taking the time to be grateful right now, how you're feeling healthy and expressing that gratitude to others, taking, you know, maybe 15 minutes to write someone a gratitude email. I just did this the other day, uh, not only makes you feel better, but also makes that other person feel better. So again, practicing mindfulness meditation, uh, doing things for other people and expressing gratitude are three kind of straightforward steps for improving your well-being and happiness. Yeah, and I think I think that last one, gratitude there, is something we practice a lot here in the show because it is. You're sitting down with me for an hour. Like, you're taking an hour out of your day to have a conversation with me and just how much that means to me. Even if it's a bad conversation, this was a good conversation, so no worries. <laughs> but even just sitting down for an hour and just having a conversation means so much. And, you know, I mean, obviously, thank you, but yeah. Yeah, well, you know, man, I'm happy to have these conversations and I encourage psychologists and human behavior researchers more broadly to do it because I think there's really a lot of great scientific research out there, but it's all written in jargon or as we discussed, very boring (laughs) empirical articles. And so taking an hour of my day to kind of help express some of the research and findings that can make other people's lives better is is a win for me too, you know, following step two of my happiness working brother. <laughs> Uh, as always, thank you to all my listeners for listening to another episode of Water Cooler Talk, the only such podcast on the internet hosted by myself and guest hosted today by Jake, where we take the strangest and most interesting real life news stories from around the world and just try and have a good old conversation about some of the ideas discussed in those bizarre news stories. And once again, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to reach out to the show with a local news story like Ellie did in this episode, or if you just wanted to share some of your own comments, you can do so at watercoolertalkpod at gmail.com or by connecting with us on Instagram at at Water Cooler Talk Pod. And you can now find all of our content centralized on our website at www.watercoolertalkpod.com from any of the links mentioned in an episode, past episodes, social media posts, and much, much more. Jake, we are to the point, my favorite point of the show, where I have the guests close out the show, makes my job so much easier. Uh, Jake, 
the floor is yours. Okay, wow, a lot of pressure. Well, thank you. No pressure, no pressure. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. It really was a pleasure getting to chat with you. Um, I really respect your perspective and what you're doing here. Um, also, you have a great voice, so I just will have you narrate the articles I need to read. That'd be wonderful. Um, but yeah, I just, I think that my closing remark would be just to go out and do something for others, try to make the place, uh, the world a better place than when you found it. And if you're really bored, check out everydaysite.com. I'm sure we'll have some interesting content on there for you to uh, uh, engage with. All right. Well, listeners, until next time, peace. This is the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world. And while many of these stories may seem fake, they're absolutely not because they're real. What an episode. What a guest. As always. What a time. Thank you again to Jake for joining us in the studio to talk about those strange and interesting news stories. Definitely take the time to read Jake's weekly blog by heading to everydaypsych.com. Once again, that's everydaypsych.com. Also, make sure to support Jake's charity of choice for today's episode, the ACLU. All it takes is $5, the price of a coffee, to help make a difference. And of course, helping out can even be as easy as talking to a friend slash coworker around the water cooler Wherever water coolers may appear. Do people still have water coolers? I, I don't even know. But anyways, to the corrections. In the first story discussing the anger at ice cream workers over face mask policies, the Trump tweet that I mentioned is as follows. Leadership. Whatever happens, you're responsible. If it doesn't happen, you're responsible. And I wanted to include that because I think it's important to mention that we should always be holding our leaders to a higher standard, regardless of political affiliation. We should always be working towards a better life in our country. It doesn't make sense to stay stagnant and let the world pass us by. People need leaders. Leaders need people. It's okay to want leaders that are willing to grow because that means people that follow those leaders will grow as well. Growth is not weakness. Stagnancy is. Those are those are just my two cents. In the second story discussing the avoidance of facts, the Scrubs episode that mentions Huntington's disease is the final episode of the series because everyone knows season nine is a spinoff show. It, it's it's a fact at this point. I highly recommend watching the episode. I'll include a short tidbit of the audio. Uh, first, obviously, you should be watching the entire series of Scrubs to gain context, but the conversation JD, the main character, has with Mr. Stonewater, the person whose mother has Huntington's disease, and then the conversation JD has with the other main characters while Mr. Stonewater decides if he wants to know if he has the disease or not, pairs incredibly well with the conversation Jake and I have about the topic. The debate of staying willfully ignorant seems like an easy answer, you know, of course I would want to know if I have this life-changing disease or not. But in reality, and as we know from the study used in the episode, that's not always the case. Like I said, I'm going to include the audio from the initial scene from Scrubs to paint that picture. And then after listening to the scene, I ask you to complete the survey by Emily Ho, which is included in the fifth paragraph of the news article, and share your results. Um, you know, I tended to stray more ignorant than average, but I'm curious to know where you stand on Emily's scale. She has Huntington's disease? It's a degenerative brain disease. It causes you to lose control of your movement and mental ability. It can also change your personality, like with your mom. So uh, what do we do? Unfortunately, there's no cure. Eventually, it'll take her. Oh, jeez. Sometimes you just have to barrel through, no matter how much it sucks. And, Mr. Stonewater, Huntington's is caused by a faulty gene. And since your mother has it, you have a 50-50 chance of having it, too. We can test you for it if you want. If, if we find out that I, I have it early on, are there any treatment options? Nothing substantial yet. I can only tell you if you have it. I, can't even tell when the disease would hit you if you do have it. Could be in your 70s, like your mom, or... Could be sooner. Could be sooner. I'm so sorry. Can I have a few minutes? Mm -hmm. 
All right, Water Coolians, that's another Corrections Corner. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to another episode of Water Cooler Talk. Once again, thank you to Jake for joining us on a remote call and talking about some of the strangest and most weirdest news stories the world has to offer. But anyways, that's your Corrections. That's your episode. Welcome back, Water Coolians. Get out of here! the story of a podcast that takes weird news from across the world and while many of these stories may seem fake they're absolutely not because they're real <laughs>